Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, Mary Magdalene has been a figure of religious, artistic and literary inspiration among Christians for 2,000 years. In the Bible, she was at the cross when Jesus was crucified, was a key witness at the resurrection and followed Christ and the disciples along the shores of Lake Galilee. In Eastern Orthodox tradition, that's how she stays, and she's celebrated as a myrrh-bearer at the tomb. In the Western Church, though, she quickly absorbed other characteristics, a presumed prostitute, a symbol of contemplation and penitence, and even the first apostle. In later legends, she travelled to France or lived in the Egyptian desert, levitating. She was vividly portrayed in medieval art, sometimes in thought, sometimes sensuous, naked, covered only by her long hair. She's been many things to many people. Seventy years ago, texts found in Egypt put Mary on a more intimate level with Jesus, a deeply disputed idea that's inspired some modern writers. With me to discuss Mary Magdalene are Eamon Duffy, Emeritus Professor of the History of Christianity at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Magdalene College, Joan Taylor, Professor of Christian Origins and Second Temple Judaism at King's College London, and Joanne Anderson, Lecturer in Art History at the Warburg Institute School of Advanced Study, University of London. Joan Taylor, where do we find references to Mary Magdalene in the Bible? Well, it turns out first, chronologically speaking, um, in terms of written evidence in the Gospel of Mark, which is the first Gospel to be written. And right at the very end of the Gospel of Mark, there is a reference to a group of women who were looking over at Jesus' crucifixion from afar. And Mary Magdalene is mentioned first, and she's among many women who follow Jesus in Galilee and serve him. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, he retrojects that into the actual mission of Jesus in Galilee. So Mary Magdalene is mentioned first, and there are these other women, Joanna, wife of of Husa, Herod's steward, Susanna, other women who are serving him in Galilee. But he also adds that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. And that is a very mysterious thing to say about her. So everyone has debated what that means. When you say serving him, let's get this straight. They mean sort of, uh, you tell us. Well, not washing his socks... (laughs) Um, Jesus in the Gospel of Mark and in all the the Gospels really is the great servant. He has come to serve. So anyone who really serves him serves in the way that he serves. So to serve Jesus actually identifies you as someone who is doing what he wants you to do to others, not just wanting to serve Jesus as as their, their teacher. These are independent women who have decided to join the the group of Jesus' disciples and be disciples and teachers themselves. Can you flesh out a little bit what we, what we get in the Gospels? Can you develop a bit? Because her roles do seem to be, particularly uh, being the first to be told, to see him resurrected after he'd been entombed, her roles seem to be critical, at critical times. Absolutely. I think Mary Magdalene, in all of the gospel accounts of the resurrection, what happens is you get a variety of different women mentioned, but Mary Magdalene is the key figure in all of these accounts. She's the one that is mentioned consistently. So the the gospel accounts were... (coughs) There was a literary relationship between the gospels, but they were also incorporating oral tradition 
and they have different takes on how the resurrection takes place, how the women experience the empty tomb, what happens at the empty tomb. So Mary's companions vary in the Gospels and in in two of the accounts, in fact, in um, in the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of John, she's just on her own experiencing, uh, seeing the, the risen Christ. So... What that all boils down to is there something absolutely critical about Mary Magdalene and the resurrection. Is there any hint of what is special about her? I think she must have had a kind of duty of care. How can I say that more uh, vaguely? Um, That doesn't imply she was married to Jesus, but it might imply that among the women disciples, she was the most preeminent and she was somehow in charge of giving Jesus what was necessary in terms of um, the duties of care regarding the dead. So she comes to the tomb expecting to do things as um, a family member would for Jesus. And uh, she may have other women with her or she might have been alone, but something happens and she finds this empty tomb instead of finding Jesus' body. And then she meets him and and he says Mary and she says Rabboni. Yes, so in the Gospel of John there is this very extended conversation between Jesus Mm. and Mary where uh, initially she doesn't recognise him. Um, She thinks he might be the gardener, which is a curious thing. Why doesn't she recognise him? And then there is this... What's your explanation? Presumably he'd been transformed <laughs> and he doesn't want her to touch him because he, he's, in a, he's in a state of about to ascend into heaven and so but he's in a, a non-human state. It, so he says, you know, don't touch me because I haven't yet ascended. There's this conversation in which she calls him Rabuni, my master, my teacher uh, in Aramaic. So it's preserving this Aramaic statement of Mary, which seems very authentic. And he says, no, don't touch me, um, but, but tell my, my disciples that I am going to ascend to um, my God and your God, my father and your father. It's, it's a, a sense that everyone is children of God and everyone can call God father at this point. So there's something miraculously transcendent that has just taken place. And to, to try and plumb the depths of that is to go deep into the esoteric esoteric vision, I think, of the Gospel of John. Eamon Duffy, in the Eastern churches, that that was how she remained, uh, a myrrh-bearing, saintly woman, and she continued in that case. In the Western church, uh, she was transformed, used as propaganda, you might say. When did the first steps go in that direction in the Western church, and perhaps why? Well, it boils down to a way of reading the texts. Um... The composite figure of Mary Magdalene that emerges in the West came from a desire to make sense of, for example, a series of events in Jesus' ministry when a woman turns up and uh, washes or anoints him and wipes his feet with hair and then Mary Magdalene at the tomb with a jar of ointment. And in Eastern exegesis, these incidents were treated as separate incidents involving different people. And that creates a number of problems. It's a modern exegetical problem still. Was there one incident when this happened or several? In the West, they thought that they must all 
somehow relate to each other. And so you begin to stitch together these different uh, figures. Who begins to stitch together? Well, the key person is Pope Gregory the Great, who was Pope at the end of the 6th century. And in one of his sermons, Sermon 33, he identifies the sinful woman who is forgiven much because she loved much and who comes to Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee. He links her to Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, uh, who appears both in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of John. So you, you, you get a sinful person who becomes the most intimate female friend of Jesus. Why did he want to do it? I don't think he wanted to do it well, in, in do the it sense then? of making a cold choice. I think in the, in the order of Christian sanctity, a forgiven sinner, especially a spectacular sinner, is a more fascinating figure than somebody who's been good all the time. One of the, the energies that drives the cult of Mary Magdalene in history is her contrast and her similarity to the Virgin Mary. If you had to choose the two female figures in the whole of the Gospels who are closest to Jesus, it's these two. And in Western tradition, the imaginative power of the idea that somebody who had been a sexual sinner could get pretty well as close to Jesus as someone who was virginal. That's a very powerful notion, imaginatively. And, and Gregory wanted to introduce very keenly on introducing the idea of penitence, a penitential sinner. Sure. You say he wants to do this. What evidence did he did he produce that she was a sinner at the time? Um, you said we needed it. It's as if we just, oh, well, we'll have one. We'll find, oh, Mary, she'll do. We'll make her a sinner. Uh, you're imagining that exegesis works, you know, that somebody sits down and says, I would like this particular end result. He's a reader of texts, and he reads the texts in an associative way. Joanne Anderson, can you develop it? This homily that he gives in San Clemente in Rome in 591 is an important moment about grafting these different elements of the saint. And it really is. What's most important about this is the um, foundation that it's going to provide for future times. I mean, remember that the um, casting of Mary Magdalene into the desert is actually something that comes later on and to do with the apocryphal legend, which I'm sure we'll come on to in due course with the golden legend. But he's uniting her together for uh, a common penitent saint. They are a model, an exemplar for the Christian faithful. And it is about um, giving a signal of hope as much as a signal of the importance of cascading sin and making sure that we um, live up to um, a good Christian life. Mary Magdalene is a symbol of hope. At the, when he unites her with Luke's unnamed sinner in, in chapter 7 there, what he's saying is that someone who fell so low was also someone who loved the most. And she is there because she loved the most. She went into the house of the Pharisee and debased herself. And we see this in the visual arts as will come later on in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries where we see her um, crawling on her hands and knees underneath the table of, on which the Pharisee and some of the apostles and his company are having dinner with Christ at the head of the table. And she's there 
underneath, crying, weeping, that lacrimose, those tears of contrition underneath over Christ's feet. And then she will dry them with that hair and then anoint them as well. So she's about love. So what do you think the implication of Gregory's uh, homily was on the future of women in the, in, the, in the Western Church? I think that it's a very complicated element. I mean, Mary Magdalene is astonishingly complicated. And it's... But I'm sure you can untangle it. I can untangle it, but it's, it's a process of historical constructions, of piecing together fragments of truth, of fragments of text, and how the visual arts have also so participated on it. The visual arts have taken Gregory's homily to heart. Yeah. They have lots of fun with the prostitute, don't they, in the red dress and so on. So, But what's your view? I mean, you've studied all this. What's your view? Well, I think that it had a damning indictment for women um, because she became a patron saint of fallen women. There were a number of convents and so on that they were associated with her. But she could also then become a positive role model in that respect so that women could, who have fallen also low, could redeem themselves later in life. So yet again, she still remains a model, a pathway to salvation. And this is what actually um, mitigates and legislates for her enormous popularity across Western Christendom. But what do you think, Uh, Joan? I think that reading synthetically, there might be grounds for putting together the the woman who is a sinner in Luke 7 with uh, Mary of Bethany, but to put together Mary of Bethany with Mary Magdalene That's another thing, again, because there's no reason to associate Mary uh, Magdalene with Bethany. She wasn't the sister of Martha, as far as we can see in, in the Gospels and in the early church tradition. So that seems a very odd thing to just kind of mash together the Marys because they have the same name. Can we talk about Magdalene as, uh, as a name? Where'd that come from? Uh-huh. Been, that again is contested. What's your view? Well, Magdalene as a name comes from the Aramaic Magdal, which simply means tower. And in Aramaic Syriac, in the the versions of the the Gospels in in Syriac, she's called Magdalitha, which simply means tower-s, tower woman. And so people have assumed that that must indicate a place called Magdal or Magdala. We know of various Magdal somethings in Judea in the first century, uh, Magdal Senna, Magdal Edda, and the one that seems most likely as in, uh, the place that could be associated with uh, Mary Magdalene is called Magdal Nunaya, which simply means Tower of Fish, and it was located very close to Tiberias on the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But Tower, I think you suggest in your notes, could have been a nickname like Peter well, the Rock and like the brother, the two brothers James and John are uh, sons of thunder and, and so on. So it could have been... Yes, a, right? that is, is exactly that it. So the moment he, she moved away from Magdal Nunaya to any other place, especially when she was down in Jerusalem where we meet her called uh, Mary Magdalene, she's called this, this name that seems to be something like a nickname. And we... Uh, we know that nicknames were characteristic of how Jesus called his disciples, you know, Peter, as you said, Sons of Thunder, maybe even Thomas, the, the, the twin, could have been a, a nickname. Um, so if she had a nickname, that indicates she was distinctive. 
it's very odd in terms of other women women's names in the first century because they're always named in association with a male member of the family usually their father or their husband. So having her simply called Magdalitha, Magdalene, indicates her as, as quite an independent, solitary figure too. Amen, Duffy. So we have this composite figure, or this figure, uh, sent into the world by Pope Gregory. What Can you give us the trajectory of her? How did she... Can you tell her what impact the idea, the then idea, the prevailing idea of Mary Magdalene had on, uh, on Christianity? Well, I'd, I'd say there were two streams uh, which are connected. One is this enormously powerful penitential dimension, the idea that you can sink as low as it's possible for a human being to get and then become as intimate with God as it is possible to be. And, as Joanne said, that's very much a theme which is seized on particularly by the mendicant orders who are preaching repentance and uh, restoration. Uh, the, the greatest evangelistic movement of the late Middle Ages sees on Mary Magdalene, uh, sorry, Mary Magdalene, um, as the primary figure of hope. And the other theme which is very strong in the liturgy of Mary Magdalene is this theme of the love of God. And that will ramify in the notion of meditation, of the contemplative life. At a very, very early stage in discussion of Mary Magdalene, in the third century, they begin to use texts from the Song of Songs. Set me as a seal upon your arm. Love is stronger than death. Many waters cannot drown love. And they put those words in Mary Magdalene's mouth. Uh, the connection is that she goes about the city looking for Jesus, uh, as the, the lover in the Song of Songs does for her lover. And Mary Magdalene at the tomb is seeking for the body of Jesus. And that idea of Mary as the figure of the soul in love with God becomes enormously potent in piety and in preaching, and subsequently in art. Joanne Anderson, we move on, well... Uh, Amon's taking us through the next few centuries, and then we we get into legends. Uh, mm. we, we've got we've had we've had history, we've had myths, and now we have legends. She became important in Burgundy and Provence in the 12th century. Could you develop that? Yes, this was the um, real moment here, particularly in, in the 11th century, when actually it starts off with the great Magdalene fermentation, as the great uh, Magdalene scholar Victor Saxer called this, um, when there was an explosion of Magdalene devotion, in particularly in France. And the arrival of Mary Magdalene in Vesely is one of the most fascinating parts in the history of Mary Magdalene. Because although in the past we do have devotional sites to Mary Magdalene in earlier centuries across Europe um, and in France, it's really in Vézelay when we see it take off. Now, um, it was founded in 8th century, but um, in the 11th century, um, when the Basilica is going up, the key patrons are the Blessed Virgin Mary, St Peter and Paul. Mary Magdalene is nowhere to be found. It is actually only later that we are going to find her brought in. Now, 
Vesalay went through, um, it's a Benedictine order, it's a great Romanesque um, abbey, and it was going through a particular difficult time with its um, populace. It was um, accused of squandering its wealth and its resources to the detriment of the community. Um, so a new administrator was brought in, Abbot Geoffrey, and he was there to reinvigorate this abbey. And during this time... Somehow he manages to lobby to get Mary Magdalene into becoming a key patron saint of that church. Now, by Pope Leo IX in 1050, we have got um, a papal bull issued where Mary Magdalene's name is written at the top. A few years later, and the others are gone, Mary Magdalene has become the top Trump girl. Vesalay becomes the fourth most important pilgrimage site in, in, Christ, in Christianity, alongside Christ's tomb in Jerusalem, St. Peter's tomb in Rome, and St. James's tomb in Santiago de Compostela. Now, Vesalay Abbey is on the route to Santiago de Compostela. So what is happening here is that Vesalay will actually claim to get the body of the saint, but they have to do it through various different auspices. They never are able to prove that they have it, so they have to come up with a legend in order to prove it. And that's the golden legend. Um, you talk about the, the golden legend. The golden legend is a uh, 13th century compilation mm. by a Dominican of earlier material, and he's processing the Vesely story, which is essentially invented in the, th in the 11th century uh, from older materials to legitimate a new shrine. And it helps a bit that uh, uh, Vesely features quite prominently in 12th century history. The Second Crusade is preached there. Becket goes there and excommunicates the King of England while he's in Vesely. And once you get these great figures in a, a place that has a shrine... The, the shrine goes out. So the, the golden legend is just shorthand for this compilation of stories which has Mary uh, Magdalene, who is imagined to be the sister of Martha and of Lazarus, and various companions, including Maximin, who's one of the 72 disciples sent out by Jesus, being persecuted. They get into a boat. They end up in Provence. Lazarus ends up as the first bishop of Marseille. Mary Magdalene preaches to the locals and then for 30 years spends her life in a cage, La Saint-Baume, where she doesn't eat or drink anything for 30 years and she's raised at the canonical hours every day by a choir of angels and her hair grows to cover her nakedness. Uh, terrific stuff in terms of medieval romance and it, was a, it went down a bomb with the painters. And it went down a bomb with the reader, with those who who heard it, whether well, exactly, they read it yes. or were read too. Yeah. Yes, it was um, it was compiled by the Dominican bishop Jacobus de Varagine, who came from Liguria. He was the Archbishop of Genoa, and um, so this brings in the key role the Dominicans had in um, promulgating the cult of Mary Magdalene. The Dominicans actually took her as their patroness in 1297. So the in Provence, when the cult is there's a sacrum furtum, a holy theft, um, and the 
clear that in 1279 that the body of the saint was never in Vesely, that they took, they stole the wrong body um, in the 8th century, that in fact it was already still in Provence. And so Charles II of Salerno, um, who was going to become the future king of Naples, finds, does this um, invention, this rediscovery of the body and sets up this new pilgrimage um, site in Saint-Maximin-la-Saint-Bombe. So it's very powerful and the legend is sitting from 1260 right in between this these two great pilgrimage um, sites. Joan Taylor, do you think that the fact that uh, it's two things, isn't it? Do you think about there was so much known about her in the Bible and so much imagined about her after them? These two things were the potent force mm. that took it forward. Well, people didn't know their Bibles that well <laughs> in the Middle Ages. The Bible was very much the, the property of the priests and those who were educated and could read the Vulgate and, and Latin. So I think the Golden Legend was a way that people could access these remarkable characters. And, and so you get this development of these folkloric traditions mm. and uh, just sheer fantasy blended in with this importance of place and, and really emphasising mm. pilgrimage. And she, was so, given, she was given miraculous power. She came she to Provence and they, the, the, the rulers couldn't have a child. She, mm. she yes. said she'd intercede with God and they had a child and on they went. Yeah. Yeah. So you still ha so there is this idea of her being quite a remarkable woman with the Holy Spirit working with her and doing things and and a teacher and, and enormously influential. So in that way, it is retrieving something that was lost in the early church that but, that she still is very important. She's very much a wealthy woman though in the Golden Legend, and mm -hmm. I think that that socio-economic classification gives her license to do some of the things that she does. Martha, Lazarus and, and Mary Magdalene are wealthy. Um, Martha actually there is the woman who has been healed of an issue of blood. So mm. she gets a, a kind of additional gospel story attached mm. to her as well. But just to loop back a second, Joan, we are talking about legend. There's no historical Weird. basis for no, this whatsoever. I, there's nothing. Well, but Golden yeah. Legend yeah. means uh, an important book to be read, Legendum. Mm. Uh, it's, it doesn't have the later... I mean, it... Uh, though it came to have the the legendary idea of you know made up garbage, mm. and uh, by the sixteenth century, both Catholics and Protestants view the golden legend as really beyond the pale uh, it 's rejected and sinks without trace, really, in the 17th and 18th centuries, resurfaces during the Romantic movement in the 19th century as part of the Gothic it, Revival. had a good, good run in the Middle Ages, though, and then it resurfaces. So. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but, but uh, remember, it's yes. not a book Pardon? to be read. It's a book for preachers to, to cull mm. stories out of. You're being pointed out by Joan. <laughs> and, and very important in pilgrimage. So when mm. pilgrims arrived in Jerusalem and they were staying in, with the Franciscans in Jerusalem over breakfast, they would have the Golden Legend read to them, not the Bible. And we do yeah. have um, manuscript um, illuminations where we can see Jacobus de Veragini preaching his legend. So this is important, that these are meant to be heard, not read. And it's the success of this. This is the medieval bestseller. It's translated into multiple languages. It shifts across Europe. It surfaces through the presses of William Caxton. And it becomes yeah. a really important source for the visual arts. But is, in the Golden Legend, is a Mary Magdalene still the Mary Magdalene that emerged after Pope Gregory's homily. Yes. So she stays... You seem... Well, I'd like to know. Are, I don't, are, are, is yeah. she still the person who was close to Christ but became a penitent sinner mm -hmm. and because of that 
is of vast importance to people who, through whom, through whose penitential work they can achieve closeness to God. Is that what's still going on? You, you have all of that, but there are additional elements added in, those apocryphal legends when she's put in the boat with the 72 other Christians. I mean, what a bit of a story of our time, you know, of them being put into this um, ship without a sailor or rudder and they're set across the seas but miraculously make it. But you get all of this, them landing about this miracle. She becomes almost like a midwife because she helps that couple um, um, hold a child and, they, and she makes them do pilgrimage. But that golden legend also sets up an important relationship between Mary Magdalene and Peter because Jacobus tells us that Peter entrusted Mary Magdalene to St. Maximin when she went to France. So that relationship between Rome and Mary Magdalene is reinforced there. So, Eamon, she's working her way through the Christian history, the Christian culture, which is the dominant culture by a long way, both in Bible itself and in the legends, and also in the art of the time, the, the, um, which we'll come to in a moment, or we can come to now. What's happening because people are learning through stained glass and, and so on, and paintings? Sure, and, and the legends become more and more elaborate and uh, more and more improbable. I think one of the interesting things about them is the persistence of uncomfortable themes in the story. Uh, we, we mentioned earlier Apostle of the Apostles. It's really difficult by the time you get to 13th, 14th century uh, to talk about a woman who's a preacher. But a feature of the story of uh, Mary Magdalene in The Golden Legend is that she evangelises Provence. So she's acting as an apostle. So the, the theme is not only not lost, it's amplified. And uh, so you get scholastic theologians. St Thomas has a long discussion about in just what sense is, is Mary Magdalene an apostle because women can't preach, can they? Uh, but she does. So uh, there, although the idea is theologically uncomfortable and not a good fit for the way late medieval Christianity was developing... The notion of Mary, the biblical notion of Mary as the first witness of the resurrection, presents itself in this legendary form just as uncomfortably as it was in the New Testament. And in paintings, Joanna? She is, represent, she is represented as a preacher, amazingly. And one of the earliest um, instances where we actually see her taking this role is in a panel in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Florence called the Magdalene Master Panel of around about 1280. And um, in one of the small panels around a great standing saint where she's covered in her hair, and one of the scenes there, she is preaching to um, the people of Marseille. And that gesture of the two fingers out there cutting them off and telling them um, that they need to convert and stop praying to the idols and follow the true word of God. And this preaching imagery, even though it's not really taken up by the mendicant orders, interestingly enough, this is not a scene that they're terribly comfortable with. Um, actually, in parish churches up in the Alps where I'm working, this is quite a common scene for her to be shown as preaching. And they don't seem to shy away from it. So it is known in the visual arts. Um, um, so it's, it's quite important. These are in mural paintings in the naves and presbyteries. So the mural painting is probably more vernacular work than the than what you the, the works that mm. have come down to us, Joan, aren't they? Which was there is the one dominating theme in the in the work now. Well, 
you know much more about this than I do, Joanne. But that theme in terms of the the artistic representation of the woman at the foot of the cross with the Virgin Mary looking very much like a nun, very well wrapped up, and Mary Magdalene looking very much like a harlot, not wrapped up at all. She hasn't changed clothes since she has been converted and repentant. She's still in her extremely revealing outfits. Um, she has her anointing jar, uh, her alabaster jar. Um, she's got her long hair flowing down. So um, the idea of the, the whore and the virgin there at the foot of the cross is there time and time again in, in Western <coughs> art. We do have that one, but we also then have the relationship with the Franciscan order as well because they saw Francis as a second Magdalene. They not only claimed Francis for being a um, alter Christus, but a second Magdalene. Um, so Magdalene, as you will often see, um, weeping at the foot of the cross, often clinging onto it, really grasping hold of it, you know, so that um, her hair is round it and the blood's coming down and almost fusing often with that red cloak. You'll see transformed that often you'll suddenly find Francis in the, that place. It's creating that kind of visual association there. Of course, that red cloak one has to be very careful with because that's not a symbol of scarlet and harlotry. That is anachronistic reading. The red cloak there, red for the Dominicans under Thomas Aquinas, was of caritas, of true love. So that is the flame, that's the highest virtue, along with faith and hope in green and white. We have the, uh, the discoveries after the um, Second World War in Egypt, Nag Hammadi, the Gnostic Gospels. How, what did, and we have the Gospels according to Mary, the Gospels according to Philip, which were written much later. Will you tell us about them and what they're supposed to have added? Uh, Mary Magdalene clearly does feature in Gnostic writings uh, in quite an interesting and prominent way as the companion, whatever that means. Of, of Jesus, and there's one uh, logon which, uh, in, in which the apostles complain that Jesus loves her more than... Well, they ask him, why do you love her more than us? And he says, well, why don't I love you as much as I love her? Uh, he turns the question. Um, they're, they're very puzzling texts. Their dating is terribly contested. The thing that always strikes me about reading them is how absolutely vaporised all historical particularity is in these texts. In all the canonical Gospels, you know Jesus is a Jew living in first century Palestine. Even in John, there's lots of reference to historical context. Absolutely none in these Gnostic writings. And, you know, he's a spaceman. He's come in from the outer atmosphere. He's not human. And she isn't human either. She's a symbolic figure. I'll have to bring Joan in here before she explodes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're talking about the Gospel of Philip. Um, yes, yes, there is a lot of esoteric uh, material there in the, in the Gospel of Philip. And Mary Magdalene is associated with other women as well who are, uh, are close to Jesus. I think there is a, a more history in the Gospel of Philip that appears apparent at this time because it's very Ask conscious. Me the microscope. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very conscious of the apostolic tradition as it is configured within that text. Um, and it's conscious of uh, issues of healing, the questions of how you can protect yourself from demonic forces, which actually belongs in, in that time period. It's, it has an association with the early Aramaic-speaking church in that it configures the Holy Spirit as feminine, which it was in 
in Aramaic and, and Hebrew. So um, I think there are lots of questions about how we place it historically. But yes, its concern is is with more esoteric issues. But it's do you not give it any, any sense? Do you give it any sense of validity at all? Yeah. I do actually. I think it, it it's a early second century text that um, that is. Coming from an oral tradition and um, still very connected with the church in Palestine, in fact, um, and is conscious of different ideas and it's it's countering different ideas. And one of the different ideas is that Mary Magdalene should be marginalised, and in this text she is the closest person to Jesus, and that the other the, the male disciples feel um, they don't have that special relationship. The kissing, I do want to say that it's not necessarily as we would configure it as a, some sort of a, a sexual or a marital uh, kiss. In terms of uh, the Gospel of Philip, it is about intimacy, a spiritual intimacy with, with Christ. And overall, and but that also is quite historically accurate because we know when Jesus was betrayed, he was betrayed with a kiss from his close disciple Judas. And no one is suggesting that Judas and Jesus had an intimate relationship. It just indicates that among his close followers, they had a very touchy-feely, kissy kind of relationship. Um, in fact, when in the, the story of the uh, repentant sinner, uh, Jesus says to the Pharisee, well, you didn't kiss me when I came into the house, but you look at her, she's kissing me. So he was really encouraging people to I, kiss. I, I think a lot of this builds... Uh, I, I don't know whether these people were familiar with the Johannine literature at all, um, beyond my expertise, but that scene in the garden in John's Gospel is one of the tenderest pieces of ancient writing there is. The recognition scene where she's babbling on to this guy she thinks is the gardener, and he just stops her in her track by saying her name, Mary. He doesn't do that to anybody else in the Gospels. And her response, Rabuni, uh, which sort of places her as his intimate disciple... There's nothing stronger than that in the Gnostic literature. And you don't need the Gnostic literature here to, to highlight. I, I don't think the New Testament attempts to marginalise Mary. When Mary goes to the di disciples and tells them Jesus is written, they don't believe her. And the evangelist tells us that. He's not... He, he believes her, but the disciples doesn't. So one doesn't need the sort of Dan Brown world to have an image, a genuine, I think, historical image of this woman who had an extraordinary closeness to Jesus. Some people, of course, are saying that they were married and so on. There's a five-letter word for that idea. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> but that intimacy, I think, is something to remember between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. There was something that was also used by the early 2nd century and through the 3rd, 4th century writers who felt marginalised by the mainstream church. So Peter then represents the, the kind of disciples that have got things wrong and Mary Magdalene is the disciple that has got things right so in the gospel of Mary 
that the, the male disciples come to Mary and they're the ones who are all terrified and they don't know what to do and, and they're stuck. And, and she's the one who really leads them to understanding um, by revealing her, her experience of, of both the risen Christ and what I think he said to her before. He died. So Mary becomes the, the symbol of a church that is itself marginalised in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. John, the Catholic Church separated the composite Mary Magdalene in 1969. <clears throat> what recent images about Mary Magdalene would you bring to mind? It's interesting to be thinking, I mean, that's in 1969, yes, that that um, separation happens. And um, if I look around, um, there's some very interesting work. Um, there was an exhibition just recently, well, in 2009 at the Metropolitan Opera um, called Something About Mary, riffing on that on the film of that title, so that power of the name, she now occupies that one. Um, but there's a wonderful painting actually by Rachel um, Feinstein where she actually paints on enamel on mirror. She ignores that separation of the penitent saint and saying and removing it she actually engages with it because of her interest in past artists um so she's there staring it's called mary brackets me and so she's looking into this mirror um, and in the background we can see a gallery behind us and she's looking almost like one of the um titian's paintings of the um half length where she's looking up in adoration and with her hair draped over her body and the breast slightly exposed, but it's a self-portrait in there. So there's still a sense of identification um, with that subject matter, but a real interest in how arts of the past have actually still informing our, our impression of her. But um, it's interesting just also thinking about um, just with that relationship between Judas and Christ and Mary's with the kiss and everything. Um, I was sitting listening to Lady Gaga's um, recent um, song on Judas. It's called Judas. And she plays Mary Magdalene in this um, song. Um, she's the, actually the only character as long with Christ that doesn't have their name on the back of their jacket. But um, she's dealing with all of these ideas from the past. Um, in her lyrics, you can see here the, the whole history and the baggage of being the prostitute saint is there. I mean, what would you... I mean, she's had a massive influence on the development of Christianity since the 6th century, hasn't she? Yes. Is there and anything the, essential that, we should, that we've missed out that we should have said about it? No, I, I think the point that Joanne's just been making about the persistence of the, the type of the redeemed sinner, I think that has been a very rich and on the whole benign influence. I think it, she has been a symbol of hope. Uh, the cleaned up image the, the, as the first witness of the resurrection is fine so long as the intimacy of Mary with Jesus, which the older sinful image uh, preserved isn't lost. This the, the the scene in the garden, I think, needs to be constantly reflected on. Finally, John, John yes, Turner. Uh, for me, it's uh, the fact that she was with Jesus in Galilee and very much involved in his mission with other women. So the historical Mary Magdalene, as a, a kind of leader of the women disciples of Jesus who were active in his mission, is for me, extremely important and, and should guide us in terms of gender in the church today. Well, thank you very much, Joan, Joan Taylor, Joanne Anderson, Eamon Duffy. Next week we'll be talking about the Dutch East India Company. And thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. So what did we miss out and what would you like to have said? Who wants to kick off? We didn't talk about the Gospel of Jesus' wife. 
which is found uh, a few years ago, just a few lines, which seems to indicate that Mary is referred to as his wife companion. But there's questions about whether or not it's authentic. So until those questions are settled, um, no one really knows what to say about it. Well, it's probably just and what, we didn't bring is, it is there any notion of its dating? I suppose that's tied up with the authenticity. Well, yes, it is. I mean, you know, second, third century Coptic text, uh, just a few lines, very, very fragmentary. They've tested it and, and seen that the, the actual papyrus is old. Um, the, the, the ink, I think, is old. But now fraudsters can mm -hmm. use this yeah, old material yeah. and still, mm. you know, produce these spurious artefacts. So um, the, it seems to be derivative. Uh, it could come from a, a textual error that's written in one of the publications on the Gospel of Thomas. So there's all sorts of uh, questions about it. And I, don't, I just don't know what to do with it. I don't know. I don't think they're holding their breath no, in the Vatican. Possibly the um, depictions of her as the desert hermit um, oh, could be quite did, interesting. Because yeah, yeah. um, I'd like to be able to like, just talk about a couple of the sculptures that yeah. show in quite a sensualized <laughs> way. Yeah. Um, also about just um, the contents of her unduent vase because <laughs> of the thing. I have actually... This is spikenard. Have you oh, ever smelt yes. it before? Yes. Oh, yeah, I'd like to. Get it in pass it over. Like, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's lovely. I thought you might like to smell yeah. it, just to see what it's like to bring in the sort of sensory aspect yes. of the colour. It's really quite, very aromatic. It is. <laughs> there's a bitterness in it as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's from the valerium roots. It so. is. And it, it, it was used well, in healing. Yes, exactly. It's, it's a healing. It's a healing. That's what she had in what her she jar. anointed. Mm. It's not just let, uh, let smell nice. Mm. That's great. Friar's balsam. Yeah, yeah so yeah. It's, it's just interesting that that's in the content. And we often see in paintings with the the jar open. Yeah. So it's inviting us to take a look in and think and yeah. start the sensory elements. There are many more religion and discussion programmes from Radio 4 to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.